catch up with a BC movie director who's showing her short film at Cannes this week. And the Coquitlam School District adopts Farsi in their curriculum and the Iranian community hopes it will expand to all of BC. And the family doctor shortage continues to hit BC residents. Well, the payment model for family doctors in BC is not appealing to would-be doctors, so they're pursuing other work instead. They're going into specialties and in the hospital setting. And this is a big problem. It's contributing to the ongoing family doctor shortage in the province, according to a report released on Friday. The report found up-and-coming family doctors are going this route in part because they're worried about the consequences of BC's fee-for-service model. Dr. Ramnik Dosanj is the president of the Doctors of BC, and she joins us on the line now. Good morning, Ramnik. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us and giving us your time on this Sunday. So break down for us how the fee-for-service model works. Well, the fee-for-service model works as a patient comes to see a physician. A physician is given a fee for that visit. It's based on visits to the doctor in the doctor's office. And what that requires is traditionally in this model, physicians have had to become managers of their clinical operations, meaning a small business owner, because they get, while they get these fees, there is a cost in that fee. So they have to hire their nurses or hire their staff. They have to pay for their medical office assistant. They have to pay for to keep their lights on, they have to pay their overhead in that clinic setting. So what you see in that fee is actually does not go to that doctor. The doctor actually has to pay a lot of their overhead in their clinical operational fee from that fee. Right. So, so that is not attractive to many of the new graduates that I'm hearing from, but it has worked well for a lot of doctors for many decades, and it still works for a number of doctors. So... For many of the doctors that take care of patients today, the healthcare conditions that they manage and the procedures now haven't kept up to date with this model. And a large majority of that is because the increase in rising cost of how to do business has been affecting this. Is that why this system seemed to work better before and now it doesn't? Yes, that's partly the reason. And the other thing is the complexity of our patients. Before we were looking after patients, they would get hospitalized for pneumonia or blood clots or long stays for C-sections. We are seeing patients that are coming outpatient for these things now, and that just adds to the burden for the family doctor. There is so much more complexity in our patients, and that is another thing that needs to be recognized. Okay. And so you mentioned earlier that doctors have to essentially become business people in order to run their own clinic. But I imagine not all doctors have that skill set. So what do they do? You're very right. I think there's great people that make this case work and have adapted it over the years. And there are opportunities to learn this way. But not all doctors want that. And to be honest, some of the other, what we're seeing with other settings in the clinical care setting, such as with our nurse practitioner colleagues. They go in, they do their work, and they leave. They don't have to think about the managerial or expenses of overhead. So what we are looking for opportunities with our government is that to provide that critical infrastructure, that payment for those clinics to be able to operate. So help that burden, relieve the, the physicians working in the setting of that burden. And that would actually 
I think, increase capacity. So you don't have to think about how you're going to keep your lights on. You can actually go and do the doctoring and what you went to medical school for, use your expertise in that visit and potentially get to spend more time with your patient. Yeah, I imagine that that uh, paperwork would also take up a lot of uh, mental space for a doctor too. You're absolutely right. And, and the problem with the paperwork is it's such an administrative burden and a lot of it is just taking boxes that we don't need to be part of that work. I mean, that is an opportunity where we can use our colleagues for team-based care and nurse practitioners and other allied healthcare professionals to alleviate some of that burden for us. Okay. Doctors yes. Doctors want to be doing what they need to be doing best. Yes. You mentioned a team there, and I've heard so many doctors say this now that they would uh, prefer to work as part of a team of healthcare practitioners, like uh, nurses, physiotherapists, social social workers. How would it, would that help alleviate the, this burden that you've spoken of? I think when we think about our complex patients coming into the office, we need to address what needs to be that they need to have met immediately. So leave the clinical diagnosis and the problem solving to us as physicians that are trained in this and are experts in family medicine. However, if there's administrative tasks or if we have food security and housing options, we know that patients are not just, health is not just their clinical aspect. We know that the social determinants of health and how our patients have access to their own housing or their own food security these days, they need bolstering of support. And so our social work or our counselors or our pharmacists to medication reviews, we can lean on our partners to help do that work. So Remnik, why, why isn't this happening already? That's a good question for the government. We want action and action speaks louder than words. This is the time we are at the greatest risk of losing our primary care system. And for the British Columbians, that means losing their health care. That means really impacting the longevity of their lives and their well-being. And that is a major concern for all of us physicians working in this. We are really scared because in the sense that our patients, at one million patients in this province, don't have primary care, do not have access to a family doctor. We want immediate action to address the access and attachment. And where, where I'm talking about that fear is that potential worsening of healthcare outcomes. We know if you trust us, we can have the solutions. We were able to pivot so quickly during the pandemic. And we want our government partners to trust us. Physicians want the best for their patients. And we should have the ability to influence the solutions. So the other uh, day I was talking on air about how I had once walked into a walk-in clinic where there were signs up on the wall that said, keep your visit short, keep it under five minutes. And I had thought it was a joke, but it was, it was in fact uh, their rule in order to churn enough uh, patients through those doors of this walk-in clinic. Now that's the route that people who don't have family doctors have no other choice but to go to that route. To my mind, that actually is a very expensive way to run things. So, so when someone is not seen by a doctor, a family doctor, about many issues and, and not seen as a whole patient, but instead by these separate tiny little issues, then it seems like they're using the system too much. You make a really good point. A few things. I'm sorry for your experience, first of all. I 
you leaned onto a point that I think is critical. We need time to be able to take care of the whole patient. And I think family doctors do that well. We provide 90% of the primary care delivery in this province. We know our patients better than anyone else. And we know what it takes to be able to keep our patients healthy. We reduce ER visits. We reduce the ability to access these different points. And you're absolutely right. I think if we could have that ability to really take care of our patients, so provide them the access they need, but the attachment, we know that longitudinal care, those doctors that are providing care from birth to through the trajectory of your life, they know you better. They know what works for you. They know what medications work for you. They know the best way to take care of you possible. So allow the doctors the opportunity to do this right it's, very, it's a very interesting point. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ramnik Dosanjh, for being with us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great long weekend. You too. At the bottom of the hour, we talked to the president of the Doctors of BC about why doctors are switching to hospital-based work and specializing instead of doing family medicine. But how is it affecting small and rural areas of our province? Joining us on the line is the president of the BC Rural Health Network, Edward Staples. Good morning, Edward. Good morning, Raji. Thank Thank you for this opportunity to speak with you. Yes, and thanks for your time on this Sunday morning. Edward, I think uh, people seem to have this idea that the doctor shortage in BC is an urban problem, but you're saying that's not the case? No, not at all. Um, This... This family doctor shortage certainly is a, a very serious issue, and it's affecting not just rural communities. Um, this is a province-wide problem, and every BC community is affected in some way, some more severely than others. Um, and certainly we feel in a rural BC where access to health care relies so heavily on having access to a family service, a, um, a full-service family physician. You said some rural areas are affected severely. How so? What do you mean by that? Well, um, there are some communities, uh, because the number of doctors, um, family doctors, in a small rural community, um, there might only be one or two or two or three. Um, And if one of those doctors happens to leave, it represents a huge impact and a huge burden for that community. So I think that's part of the problem. I think the other the other problem is um, it's it's becoming more and more difficult to recruit and retain doctors in rural communities who are often drawn to the urban environment. And, and there are certain factors at play there that uh, encourage doctors to to work in in urban communities and uh, uh, bringing doctors into into the rural um, practice. Is, is a real challenge. But don't rural doctors get paid more? No, they get the same uh, fee for service. I think there are, there are incentives. I'm aware of some incentives that, that, they, that they get. But um, no, they, they, they get the same fee for service as other doctors do. Okay, because yes, I have heard of um, programs to incentivize coming to work uh, in rural areas, um, including, for example, uh, coming in only once every six weeks for a short period of time to a rural area in order to help out. Um, Have you heard of that? 
Yeah, there, there are certainly programs that, that bring doctors into our communities. I think part of the issue, though, Raji, is that the, um, it, it's, not just, it's not just about what they get paid or, or what their, um, their compensation is. It's what they're experiencing in rural communities. So often what happens, well, I think most rural community uh, family physicians experience the same thing. It's not just primary care that they're responsible uh, for. They're also responsible for uh, providing acute care, um, for doing emergency, on-call emergency care, long-term care in in long-term care facilities, um, on top of all the other things that other doctors are required to do. So it's it's a situation where um, bringing people into rural communities, bringing doctors into rural communities is a real challenge for a variety of reasons. It's a complex problem, and and it um, it can't always be addressed simply by saying, we can pay you a little bit more money. Okay, yes, I was reading on the uh, BC Rural Health Network website just an article about how Galliano's only doctor is scheduled to depart in August, and then the 1,400 residents won't have a doctor unless someone steps in. Uh, couldn't So you're saying that it's not enough to just add some money as incentive to draw doctors. What else could be done and should be done? Well, there, there are several ways that we can address the, this very complex problem. Um, I think one of those is, is that um, what I would like to see is that we, we take a, a look at the model of care that we're providing. Um, I think, first of all, we need to rethink the urgent and primary care center model, um, which is a made-in-BC model that with little or no evidence to show that it's helping the situation. In fact, in rural BC, it may actually be uh, making the problem worse because uh, family physicians can make more money for less work um, in UPCCs, which tends to draw these doctors away from small community practice. The model that that I advocate for is the community health center model, um, which is a proven model. It's got mountains of, of research evidence to support its effectiveness, and it, it's a way to develop a team-based approach which um, makes it possible for everyone that's involved in care in a community to um, to be a part of the care that the, uh, the people receive. Another thing that might might be done is to allow physician assistants to practice in BC. I think this would really help the situation. PAs, as they're called, are healthcare professionals that are educated in the medical model, um, and they practice medicine under the supervision of a licensed physician. There are four provinces in in the country: Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, and New Brunswick that have uh, licensed. Uh, physician uh, assistance, and this would certainly help if the province was to um, have that um, happen in in BC, because it would take away many of the responsibilities of of family physicians, freeing them up to see more patients in primary care. So I think that's that's part of it. Um, the other the other issue here is that. We have to be careful because recruiting doctors from outside the province, either from other Canadian provinces or from other countries, may help the situation. But by doing this, 
we really run into ethical issues. We know that other provinces and countries are experiencing similar shortages. So convincing doctors to come to our province means that we might simply be making the problem worse for them. I see. Edward, uh, other provinces are doing this. They're allowing licensed physician assistants, PAs, to be uh, employed to help out in that way that you're recommending occurs in BC. But why hasn't our province already done that? That's a very good question. Um, There are organizations, um, physician assistant organizations outside of our province um, that we've spoken to and we are advocating and, and trying to convince the, the uh, Ministry of Health to look at this as a, a potential solution seriously. Um, and the, there's a lot of information that's available from other provinces to show the effectiveness of, of PAs, and I can only hope that the, the ministry, um, in their wisdom, will see their way clear to uh, to make that change happen. But that's just really just one, I believe that's one possible solution. There are, this is, this, there is no single solution, and, and there can't be a cookie-cutter approach. Yeah. Because every community's needs are different. Yes, it's so true. But now, as the province looks at this staggering number of, of individuals here without a family doctor, and it's near 1 million BC residents, the province knows that they have to make some big changes because we are literally in a crisis. So how should they tackle this? I'm not talking about the actual solutions, but a step before that in almost this brainstorming uh, arena, how should they tackle this huge issue, beginning to think about fixing the broken system? You know, that, that's, that's the $64,000 question right there. How can we fix this? I think that in order to fix any problem, you've got to understand what, um, what the details are. Um, I think the solutions are there, but what you, as you point out, there are close to a million BC residents that don't have a family doctor, and that number is forecast to increase, mainly because of the large number of doctors who will be retiring in the next 10 years. Um, according to the Ministry of Health, the information that I have is that about 37% of family physicians are over the age of 55, and many right now are continuing to practice into their 70s, um, because they realized the negative impact that it would have on their community. If right. They would. Yes, absolutely. Edward Staples, thank you so much for being with us this morning and sharing your perspective. Okay, thank you very much. Now, I've been talking to you this morning about what your experience has been like with learning a second language, or in some cases, a third language. Did you grow up with your parents speaking a mother tongue and did you speak it or not? Have you tried to learn a language later in life? Um, I have tried to learn several uh, languages. I've tried to learn uh, German when I lived in Berlin for a while and and gosh, that was really hard. Uh, I took Mandarin and I did that because I knew I was going to go to China and do some extensive uh, traveling there in different regions. And I was also uh, going for work. So I thought I should, I should have some Mandarin under my belt. And I loved the courses, but 
when I got to China, nobody understood a word I said. And of course, like then I would do these like hand gestures and charades to try to <laughs> communicate what I wanted to, you know, uh, trying to explain to people that I was vegetarian, for example, was a really hard one to do with your hands. Uh, but when I would say it in Mandarin, people did not understand me. Um, and your charades, I realized when you're doing like gestures with your hands or whatever, those might not be like, globally understood and they weren't in China. I remember I was asking someone for directions somewhere once and I was putting two fingers on my other from one hand on the other hand going like a walking motion but that's what we think in North America for walking or in Western society but maybe in China that's not what they think of for walking or walking path at all. Maybe they have a totally different way of communicating that. So language. I do love that we have uh, so many different languages in the world and I would love uh, to learn some new ones. The reason we're talking about this is because uh, now in the Coquitlam School District, they've decided to add Farsi to the roster of languages that you can learn. And we're going to have a guest on who's going to talk about how uh, he's been working in a, with a grassroots organization to try and get Farsi as a regular school language offering across BC. And I'm going to check in with our Phil Figueredo, who's manning the boards with me uh, this morning to see uh, what his experience has been with other languages. Because Phil, you actually did uh, French immersion, right? I did, I did Francophone. So I was actually born in, in Montreal. Um, I moved here when I was like eight months old. So, oh, okay. uh, but yeah, my parents both fluent in French. I went to a Francophone school. Um, so for me, it was pretty advanced in that regard. I also learned a bit of Portuguese because my dad's Portuguese. Uh, but I only ever knew that, or pardon me, I, I, I knew I was always in trouble when my dad started to speak <laughs> I know where Portuguese. This is going, yes. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm fluent in French. I know a couple bad words in Portuguese, and I know that when I'm in trouble, it's because of Portuguese. Um, but a, a few years ago, 2016, uh, my wife and I, we went traveling around the world. We were gone for five months, and we made it a point that every country that we went to, we wanted to learn like a sentence or some form of communication before we got to that country in order to, you know, English is so dominant around the world, and I feel like everywhere we go, people have to accommodate English speakers. So yeah, so true. Our, our point was like we have to learn something before we get to that country um, or in the country, so that we can communicate with people in a certain way, whether it be you know a food item or you know how do we get to this hostel or can you call us a cab or something okay. along those lines, right? Yeah. So to accommodate other people because they do so much to accommodate us tourists and, and travelers and stuff. So. Language is, is pretty incredible. Nice. So uh, what did you learn? Like, what, where were you visiting? Oh, my God. I, we went to, I think we went to 12 countries. Um, to say that I remember any of the things, <laughs> I'd be lying. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't remember too, too much. But, the, I mean, uh, I know it sounds bad now, but the effort in the time was there. Like, we did, uh, it, there was actually another time a few years prior to that where there were six of us that went traveling to three different countries. And we all got tattoos done in Portugal by a man who didn't speak English, didn't speak Portuguese, oh didn't speak gosh, Spanish, Phil. and we somehow all ended up with just beautiful tattoos, oh. and it somehow worked. Whew. I was yeah. worried there for a second, because the tattoo is as permanent as it gets. Yeah, no, no, didn't have to someone. get it removed, but oh yeah, it was gosh. good. Okay, that is something else. Mm -hmm. uh, this story reminds me of when my husband and I were in Istanbul, and we were headed to Greece. 
we were on a boat and there was a couple sitting across from us. And like I said earlier, my husband, he's, he's tried his hand so hard. He's tried with all, all his effort to try and learn French. Like he's taken so many courses, mm-hmm. online, tutoring. Whatever. And for some reason, it just doesn't sit with him. I knew he took Spanish because he's American. I knew he took Spanish in, in high school. Right. Uh, I didn't know if he like spoke uh, any significant amount of it. But when we were on this boat on our way to Greece, there was a couple across from us and I surmised that they were from Argentina. They didn't speak any English, but we like barely, we barely figured that much out. And then my husband starts having a conversation with them Mm. in Spanish and they spoke to each other for an hour in Spanish, like pretty nicely, like back and forth. And it was very fluid. And I looked at him and I was like, what? We have been together for five years at that point. Now it's like a hundred. Um, and I, I had no idea that he had that ability whatsoever. That's amazing. And then a similar moment for him was, and it also involves travel, of course, as language always comes up when you travel, was uh, he didn't know that I spoke Punjabi very well. And I was, uh, this was early on in our relationship, we were at an airport and there was uh, an elderly Punjabi person who was sitting by herself. And I just thought she looked like she could use some company. And so I saddled up next to her and just started speaking in Punjabi. And at one point I looked up and saw uh, my husband, just eyes totally wide and (laughs) jaw to the floor. And he said, I've never heard you speak that much. And I'm like, what, you've been around my parents? And he's like, yeah, but you always respond to them in English, something I hadn't realized. But yeah, I always talk to my parents in English. Right. One quick last story one, about the travels was... Let's hear it. The, the one funny thing that I, I, I had on my travels was when we went to France, I'm fluent in French, mind you. I'm fluent in French, Quebec French. When I got to... Uh, yes. When we got to France and we got to a train stop and I was asking them in French, how do I get to this location? In French, they would respond to me in English. No. Yeah, yeah. I, and I heard that this is a thing that happens when you get to France one hundred percent, it is. We uh, we had it happen a few times on our travels. There was obviously a few people that, you know, if they couldn't speak English or whatever the case may be, they would respond back in French. But there was a bunch of times. See, I find that insulting. Uh, yeah, that's what I said. I was like, I'm trying to make an effort here, sure, to yeah. speak the same language because I know that I'm here. I know how to speak it. I know that you understand me, but yeah. because of my accent or whatever, they would respond to me in English. Yeah, well, there yeah. is this whole thing between the French in France and the French spoken in Quebec, and they are like rivals. I know. So I know what you're talking about. I have had it happen to me mm-hmm. when I was living in Quebec, but I was visiting France. And I also tried to then put on a like France French accent. Mm -hmm. I just think, you know, I look around me in BC, in Metro Vancouver, for so many people, English is a second language. And every single day, their brain is doing like mental gymnastics to try and speak in a way that, you know, hides their background or makes makes other people accept them more. It's like language has everything to do with belonging, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely agree. Definitely agree. Growing up in Surrey as a kid, I had one option when it came to learning a new language, and that was French. Some would argue that it wasn't a useful language for us to learn on the West Coast because you don't get to use it very much in BC outside of the classroom. But you know what? 
I loved it. I loved it. It opened my mind up to so many other things. And it even made me want to move to Montreal and learn and practice more French when I was 18. Well, the school district in Coquitlam has now approved a curriculum to bring Farsi languages language classes to the classroom and to the students. So cool. So joining us is the president of Farsi Dar BC, a grassroots campaign to bring Farsi as a second language option to all other BC schools. His name is Amir Bajekian. Amir, good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Salam. Salam. <laughs> Did I say it right? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that means uh, that you're already qualified to teach it. There we go. So what does it mean to you that Coquitlam has added Farsi to the school district's uh, language offerings? Uh, it is a huge accomplishment uh, because uh, we uh, it, it took us a while to figure out how to actually take the big first step because uh, that is the, f- the step towards the provincial approval to, uh, as you mentioned, make the course available for uh, all students uh, where, where there is a demand in a, in a school. Yeah, so the numbers that BC puts it at are that there are 43,000 Farsi-speaking residents in our population. Does that make it that there are enough kids that would take Farsi across BC? Uh Yes, uh, and also I, uh, I I usually have uh, I usually take issue with that number because uh, due to some uh, due to the, our past uh, trust issues with governments before coming to Canada, we still have uh, a little bit of trouble uh, declaring our la- preferred language in the census forms, which is the source of this information. So, oh, so do you question yeah. that number then? Yes, uh, in our estimate, it's between seventy to ninety thousand Iranians in the, the Lower Mainland, between twenty to thirty thousand Afghans uh, as well in the Lower Mainland, and we estimate there's about ten thousand others uh, in other parts of BC. And it's growing as the affordability crisis continues. People continue to move to other parts of the province, so it is becoming more viable. Okay, so you do, and then your numbers put it at way higher. So then do you believe that enough kids would take Farsi if it was offered at schools beyond just Coquitlam School District? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, there are diff- uh, there are multiple school districts that we approach to and we talk to them. And uh, there are students who are currently registered in after-school programs, which uh, unfortunately they don't receive any credit for it. And, uh, you know, the the main point that we wanted to uh, have uh, in this uh, plan was to have a curriculum that is standard. It is uh, offered during school hours and for credits. And uh, we believe there is a huge demand for that. And uh, it's not uh, any less than other languages that are currently offered in the school system. Amir, talk to me about that huge demand. What's behind it? Why do people want Farsi in school? Uh, The thing is, uh, after decades of uh, becoming uh, of establishing uh, farsi speaking communities i'm talking about the iranian and afghan communities we're getting to the point that we're uh, becoming uh, an established communities community and uh, our communities are very well connected to their roots uh, in their uh, in the na- their native lands and their language and uh, they really want to get the to, to for their kids to learn that, to transfer this uh, heritage, their heritage and their culture to the kids. And on top of that, 
we would like to share our culture and our heritage and our language with our neighbors in this new home of ours. Amir, where did you grow up? I grew up in Iran. And when did you come here? I came in 2005. In 2005. Uh, do you mind if I ask if you have children? Uh, nope. No. So if you, say, had come earlier, if you had come when you were a kid and you were able to take Farsi in, uh, in school here in BC, how do you think that would have impacted you? It would be very... Uh, it, it would basically uh, keep me connected uh, to my roots uh, and the way I, I was connected uh, because I came here later. Uh, you see, a lot of kids uh, that I talk to, a lot of, uh, um, I call them kids, a lot of uh, people that I talk to who grew up here and did not have that option, uh, I, I have yet to find one person who tell me that uh, they don't regret not having the option to learn it because... Oftentimes, um, they're okay in speaking the language, but in terms of reading and writing and communicating with the elders uh, and with the, uh, you know, uh, with the news, with the, uh, with, the, with the books, with other sources of literature, they still they, they have a huge regret and they try to make up for it by taking courses for adults uh, in universities and all that. But, uh, you know, it doesn't make up for learning it as a child, as a kid in the school. So you're saying that they lose some culture in that process by not keeping up with the language uh, and learning it in school? Through no fault of their own. Yeah. And so if this if this goes through in Coquitlam as it's going to, and there's the potential, you said, for it to uh, be a bigger movement where people across BC start being more vocal about demanding it in their school districts too, what do you think the broader impact would be for the Iranian community in BC? It is a huge, uh, uh, it is going to be huge for the Iranian community because uh you know, we have a challenge uh, in uh, BC with uh, visibility, and I'm talking uh, about Iranian and Afghan communities, both of them, because we share the same language. So this is the first step, and uh, the Curriculum School District submitted the curriculum to the Ministry of Education for the provincial approval. And uh, like I said, oftentimes we have issues with visibility. We have a huge community here Everywhere we go, uh, we, uh, you see Iranians and Afghans, uh, Farsi speakers, uh, e- even in the most remote parts of the province I traveled and I, uh, no, I, I could, could meet uh, an Iranian there. So, but we are not visible. We are not uh, recognized as much. So this is the first step towards being recognized as an established community that is contributing to uh, British Columbia. Amir Bajekian, thank you so much for being with us and talking to us about getting Farsi as a second language option in schools today. Thanks for having me. It was great talking about languages, and I hope more languages are added for the benefit of our students. And this is uh, a good. Uh, this is good for our communities because it would make us, uh, you know, uh, after a lot of traumas that we have uh, surrounding both communities, this is a, a little bit of good news that I hope brings some joy to people. Absolutely. Thank you, Amir. Thanks for having me. Well, as it turns out, a young BC filmmaker is at Cannes 
now. And she was selected to show her short film there. It's called Mondi. And it's a heartfelt ode to all the tricky feelings of childhood. So joining us from Cannes is the director of Mondi, Adriana Marchand. Good morning, Adriana. Morning. How are you guys doing? We're great. And I actually don't know if I should say good morning because it's not morning in Cannes, is it? <laughs> we can say bonsoir. Bonsoir. Uh, bonsoir. Like ça marche. <laughs> okay, good. Great. So how is it there? What's it like to be at the oh festival for you? It's amazing. The energy is incredible. It's every, you know, movie nerd's dream just to come here. Um, everybody's walking around just buzzing because they've seen or got into like a certain movie that they wanted to see or, you know, you see a certain celebrity. And no, it, it's been incredible for all of us to just be here. I'm here with my producer, Derek Kwan. Amazing. So you have had celebrity sightings, I'm sure. Um. <sighs> I don't know if it was a, a celebrity for me. I saw my favorite director, Gaspar Noé, inside a, a oh, screening the other that's night. that's great. Yeah, so that was a pretty big deal for me. Wow, fantastic. So we have to f- understand now how you ended up there. <laughs> uh, you know what? Good question. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> um, we made this film out of just uh, an idea I had uh, when I went to theater school, I wrote a play when I was at UVic and um, it was just through our friends and uh, uh, my, the lead actor, Jesse Irving, who kind of encouraged me to, to write the script. And uh, we shot it last summer in September and threw it together, just guerrilla style. And honestly, it's just a commitment to all these amazing people who have been on this journey with me. I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesse, Ryla, Derek, Justin, uh, the two boys who star in this film, they are, they steal the show and we just submitted it. It was, uh, just kind of on a whim to telefilm and telefilm is who brought us here today. Yeah. And I understand telefilm amongst everyone they selected from Canada to go over in this uh, short film uh, procession almost. Uh, You're the only director from BC. Is that right? Yeah. So um, we're one out of seven films that were selected. Um, I think majority of the other filmmakers are from Ontario and Montreal, Um, So we are representing the West Coast here. (laughs) Amazing. Well, this film that you've made, the short film called Mondi, it's about 20 minutes long. And what stuck out for me the most in watching uh, the screener was just the vibe, the aesthetic alone. (laughs) And for me, when um, I think back to the films that have really stood out for me, it's usually it's not scenes that I remember, but it's that overall aesthetic, the overall look or feeling of the look um, from a film. It made me think of uh, like Sofia Coppola as early stuff like suicide girls watching just this like quirky kind of summer fable unfold um and then also the soundtrack was really great but can you tell us a little bit about what the story is of mondi well first of all thank you so much for saying those kind things i mean um uh Sofia Coppola is a huge influence of mine. So thank you for even saying that but um mondi itself is i like to kind of describe it as a you said it yourself, a quirky summer fable. It's full of action, snack, great music. Um, I I think it's a heartfelt ode to those weird, crunchy, sticky feelings of childhood. I kind of like to draw this, this line or this, you know, parallel of symbols and things that tether us to our past and especially, um, what happened to us when we were kids and, you know, our experiences we have with our mothers. 
so that's those are some big kind of uh, themes of the film. But it's fun. Like, again, we just had so much fun making it. So I'd like to say it's a, a it's it borders on a dark comedy. And um, again, it just makes you have those nostalgic feelings of, you know, summers of home videos and store-bought cake and slushies and stuff like that. That just sounds so amazing. <laughs> it really, it really uh, places one in the in the short too. So you're you're part of this telefilm, not short on talent um, group that they sent over. What are you getting from the other directors uh, that you there at Cannes that you just wouldn't have exposure to if you didn't go to this festival? Uh, well, it's really interesting. And we decided to kind of cash in on the whole festival by coming early. So we uh, got here on the 17th. So at the very beginning of the festival. And really, my producer, Derek, and I have just been trying to immerse ourselves 100% in everything that's going on. Like we we were waking up at 6.30 every morning just to get tickets to movies and kind of just uh going into the Canadian pavilion every single day to meet people and um, to hand out. We, we created these beautiful zines with a press in Chinatown called Moniker Press. And um, uh, we designed uh, with some of our photographers behind the scene photos and an interview with uh, my uh, good friend from New York, Jameer. Uh, he uh, put together this, you know, we, we did it fast, but we wanted to have something so we could hand it out and kind of have a talking point to get to know everybody. And it's been amazing. We we went to the the TIFF uh, networking party the other day, and that's a big goal for us to secure a premiere because technically this isn't a premiere status. It's just kind of to um, get our work out there and to uh, meet the right people. Fantastic. What's next for you in filmmaking? Well, we did adapt this script into a feature that we did submit to Telefilm. So uh, hopefully we'll uh, get to work on that more and uh, just meet the right people and get our story out there. Uh, I I just want to continue doing this. Being here, it's like just confirmation of (laughs) my dream and what I was kind of born to do, I guess. Yeah. Remind me of your age again. Uh, well, it was my goal to write and direct this before I turned 25, and yeah. we did that. It, we, the last day of shooting was actually my birthday, so I <laughs> snuck it in I, there. I, I, yeah, I shot it at 24, and now I'm 25. Amazing. Amazing. Congratulations. Way to go on getting your short film at Cannes, and I hope this is just the beginning of many wonderful things to come for your career. Oh, thank you so much. And we're so excited to come back home and share it with everyone. We're going to hopefully have a big screening and um, invite everybody. You must let us know the details when it's all happening. We will for sure. Thank you so much. Have a great day there or bonsoir. Bonsoir. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.